If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about victory, talking about victory conditions, talking about what does it look like to have various victory conditions in a hierarchy, that this one is better than that one, but that other one's better than all of them. What does that look like? And we're talking to Dan Hundix from DPH Games. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, so glad that you're here. This is such a cool idea. You know, we were talking before the show, there's not any games that do this other than maybe one from 1995 <laughs> that you kind of found that does this, maybe a little bit. But in general, this is a very like novel concept. And so I'm just kind of excited to understand how it works, where it, the idea came from, you know, the challenges, kind of overcoming these different things. So I'm sure there's always pros and cons. There's, there's never the perfect solution. There's always trade-offs. And so I'm excited to get into that. But before we do, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Um, well, I, you know, I was one of those kids playing all the typical games, you know, Monopoly and Life and Mousetrap. Although I don't think I ever played Mousetrap. You just set it up and watch it go. Um, and actually a game called Dogfight was one of my favorites as a kid, which is not a bad game, really. Um, and then when I was like 14, 15, a friend of mine got this weird game that I'd never seen before called Panzer Blitz from Avalon Hill. And I just, so I just, the next few years bought a bunch of those Avalon Hill games and loved them. Um, hit college, fell into the D and D group type thing, um, played Diplomacy, which is probably still one of my favorite games of the friends I have left after playing that game, um, and uh, Cosmic Encounters back in the, and this is a few hundred years ago because I'm an old man. Um, then I was a school counselor for years and, and in there uh, helped do a summer space mission, did some computer programming it with BASIC. That's how long ago that was. Um, and but you went to space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We so. we uh, pretended to go to space. The kids would actually stay overnight, and we had four computers running, and yada yada. Um, then uh, with a biology teacher, uh, we had a college bio class. That gosh, I haven't counted the years, but probably about fifteen years. We'd do a uh, a crime scene where we'd murder a mannequin, and actually go through the process, and they'd have to uh, solve that. And that that actually relates to gaming in the sense that you didn't want to make the perfect crime but you also didn't want to make it too easy. And um, that really helped with learning and understanding balance, I think. Um, then after that, I was uh, working in like a, a think tank, for lack of a better term. We all have desks in there and do different things. And um, I have a friend I introduced to geocaching. 
and he went nuts with it. His kids wanted to have a geocaching birthday party. And I said, well, I'll go buy a game about geocaching. There's a game about everything, right? And uh, there wasn't one. So made started making one. Um, we worked on it a little bit. I got up to his, his party and there's board gamers. there, not really geocachers. He and I are the only two geocachers. And they were like, this is, this is pretty good. You should do something with this. And thus the journey started. Um, and I uh, have a, a guy in our office who um, basically said, do you want to make a game or do you want to start a game company? I said, let's start a game company. And uh, he gave me a challenge to come up with five games that I was going to work on in the ne- you know, like the next day. <laughs> and uh, I came back with a list and um, just thought, what do I know? And it was psychology and stuff like that. I, I think I only made like two of the games on that list, but the, the concept of uh, having a company is what he inspired. And that was in uh, 2013. So we've been around how many every years that is. And I think Usurp the King will be game number 11. Yeah, very cool, man. That, that's awesome. Just kind of hear the journey. And it's also always interesting to hear about how some things in a person's past, jobs that they had, ideas that they had years ago that then come back to help them with their skill set or give them inspiration or something like that. It's always cool to hear, you know, how those things kind of come full circle. Yeah, and absolutely. And it wasn't a plan. I mean, it, I've always had interest in gaming and, and uh, designing things. Um, and then the counselor stuff comes in. I mean, really 2020 was difficult because half my motivation for doing this is going to conventions and, and meeting people and sitting around and having a great time and laughing. And, and that was you know, absent, um, as you're doing these things online. So, um, the, the counselor part is really still ingrained in terms of, um, having people interact and, and really enjoy themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's, it's you know, been a, a huge challenge for a lot of people. And, um, uh, but anyway, let's get into the topic at hand. Let's talk about this victory condition hierarchy. Tell me what it is. Like, give me a definition. Like, how would you describe it? And then we'll get into kind of the genesis and how it works and all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I guess I would call it a layered um, stack of victory conditions. I don't really have a better term for it. Um, it came about because I wanted to do a game about court intrigue. It might have had something to do with Game of Thrones at the time. Um, but, uh, so I just thought about, well, you know, how does it work in a monarchy? How does how does someone become king? What's the, the hierarchy in there? And essentially started building down from that, um, with the exception in, in this game that the usurper victory condition, it actually is the one that starts at, at the start of the game. If, the, if you didn't play the game, the usurper would win, um, <clears throat> however you play the game. And so, uh, so basically victory condition number one, is the usurper needs to be alive, uh, needs to be controlled. I, I guess I need to describe the game a little first, if I can. Um, yeah, you're, you're playing families around the court. So you're not actually playing anyone in the court. You're using influence uh, secretly behind the scenes. Um, and so you're, you're, it's, it's a pretty simple, actually, game to play. You start with 10 cards, you play six um, in a serpentine motion, they're played face up. Then it goes to the second phase where you resolve these cards. And we can talk a little bit about that later, but then the, uh, game hits and it's a game end state. And at that point you look and see 
the situation. And, and that's when you start working your way down this, this victory conditions chart. And so if the usurper is alive, there are three court members that are disgruntled and one player controls the usurper, um, <clears throat> which is having one more card than anyone else on, on that, on the usurper. Uh, they win, and you don't go any further down the tr the tree. It's not really a tree, but um, the next condition is the king. So if the usurper condition was not met, and all of those conditions will start with if the conditions above were not met. So if the king is alive and you control the king, you win. Um, the heir, if the above conditions are not met, the heir is alive and loyal. The king is dead and you control the heir. Then it goes down to the bastard, then the court, which um, is having the most loyal court members alive and loyal. I said loyal, I guess. And then it goes to the anarchist, if all that stuff is messed up. And then it goes to true anarchy and no one wins if, if none of those things happen. So the, the effect of this is if um, Gabe is trying to win as the heir and I'm trying to win as the bastard, we both want the king dead. And we both want the usurper out of the way, but in no way are we actually <laughs> trying to help each other. Um, but we are still kind of working, I'm going to say very loosely, quote unquote, together, because we do need those other objectives out of the way in order for us to win. So it, it does, it has that effect. And the second effect it has is that... Um, you change loyal. You'll change your loyalties based on the circumstances. So, you see an opening to win, at, win as the king, and you can move things around and maybe seize upon that. Um, so you may start out in one direction, but you might change one or two times throughout this. It's about a half hour game. It's pretty fast, actually. Gotcha. This is super interesting. Oh, so I, okay. So I'm assuming that no one knows who anyone is. Like if I'm trying to win with, with the air, does anybody know that? So that's the, uh, the funny thing is that it sounds like a hidden role game and it's absolutely not a hidden role game. We all play these families. So if I'm the Sylvester family, what you don't know is who I'm backing. Yeah. So at the beginning of the game, like I don't get a, a card dealt to me like in most of these games and I right. look at it and it says, okay, I am this person. I am this faction. It's just I am this family, and now I'm going to be putting my influence behind some one of the, of these other things that that other people could also put their influence towards. Exactly, exactly. And and uh, the cards are dual purpose; they're influence, but they also are bribery or daggers or conspiracy. So, uh, so one of the um, so the benefit of that is it keeps a, it creates a very fluid game in the sense of your objective may change. Uh, two or three times. The the downside of that is it's a, a fair amount of ambiguity when you start the game. So some people aren't comfortable with that. So we have a, a tutorial deck that basically you draw and it suggests maybe you want to try to win as the king. And here's what you do. And here's the valued cards to do it. So usually after a couple of plays, people get it and they don't need the cards. But um, and some people don't need the cards right away. But if you're one of those people that like, I, who am I going to try to win as? And you need that little guidance. It's there. But by the very nature of it being fluid and wanting you to change maybe who you're backing, it's a little ambiguous that way. 
Yeah, and I think it's really smart, especially in today's world where there are a million games, is to make them as accessible as possible and adding little things like that to kind of help people get into the game that are brand new to it or you know, maybe they're the, they're the only new player at the table. That's always fun because I've yeah. got a ton of gamer friends that have played all these games and then I'll come you know, at home for the summer or whatever and then I'm there and they've played this game 20 times. They've like figured out the strategy and I'm there for the first time. And it's real weird because I can't be like, hey, so let's say just for an example if you had these cards uh what, what would you do you know like oh obviously gabe has those cards you know and so you yeah. have to be kind of clever in, in your questions sometimes and i you know give away your strategy or whatever so i think that's that's really smart and now i bet there's a lot of balancing that goes into this kind of game to making sure that pretty much every uh, level of the hierarchy is not necessarily balanced that all of them have a 10% chance of winning or anything like that, but just kind of making sure there's no clear, okay, whoever goes for the king, they have a much better chance of winning because of this reason and balancing that out. So tell me about how do you, how did you balance this game? Yeah. So there's two aspects of balancing in this. So the, the second phase, so after we place all our cards and there's 10 cards, so there's agents, briberies, uh, conspiracy, dagger, guards, poison, spy, antidote, betrayal, and books. And so um, one of the, I'm going to start with the back end uh, balancing. So one of the things that happens or the way that the second half of the game goes is you uh, look around the table and all, without getting into too much detail, the spies are going to resolve first. So the green spy resolves and on that card, it basically says you may move one card of another player. So you can you can move anything except for poison, and so you, that person's going to move, and it goes to the next spy, and so on until all the spies have resolved. And then we move on to agents, which allow you to move a card with the agent. It's in the same attached to the same court member, and then daggers resolve, which um, will kill the court member unless there's a guard there. In that case, it kills the guard. Um, and then betrayal, you can move one of your own cards, and then books. And the way books work is you may um, put a card in the book at the beginning of the round, um, and it can be anything but a person, so you can't fit spies, guards, and agents in books. Um, and those books resolve as long as they're attached to someone who's alive, and and, um, and then poisons resolve. And the other cards are states of being, antidotes protect, briberies make people loyal, conspiracy makes people disgruntled and guards protect against daggers. So uh, the order in which those things resolve was, um, gosh, changed a million times because the later you go, the better. And so because you have more information as to what's happening. And at one point, the ability to move another player's card was called treachery. And the problem was 80% of the time you'd put treachery in your book. And because it's the last thing to go and you could move someone else's card and that would be the player that would win. So by making that a spy that you can't put it in a book, it really kind of uh, washed through and balanced out things. Um, so we were continually moving things up and down to see what was being played, what wasn't being played, what seemed overpowered. And, and the one that was sort of the tough one was we needed the agent to go early but it was a little too powerful so now the card that the agent is moving goes with the agent um and again a little hard to explain without visually doing it but if you if you put an agent next to a dagger and you move that dagger 
which is awesome because you're going to kill someone else than who you wanted killed. But your agent basically is going to be sitting on a dead court member, which means your influence is wasted. And so we balanced that out. I mean, wasted in quotes, I guess, because it could have been a useful thing to do. Gotcha. It also sounds like you've got a little bit of self-balancing in that the players at the table are kind of balancing things out. And so if if one uh, level, I guess the king or whoever, maybe starts going one way, then the other people who need the king dead are going to balance that out. They're going to go, no, 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 that guy needs to go. And so, Absolutely. And um, you could start out the game putting a dagger on the king, fully intending on moving that dagger. Um so it's it's a little fake out in the sense of, you know, I'm intending I'm winning as the king, but I'm going to kind of throw everyone off by putting a poison or dagger there. Now, agents can move poisons, so they're the only way to, to move poisons around. So then the um, other balancing of uh, the victory conditions themselves, um, just it took some... It took a lot, a lot of tweaking. We actually were developing this game all through 2019 so we could bring it to uh, uh, conventions and, and that kind of thing. And, and actually, if, if we're talking about design, it's, um, it's an interesting little story, at least I think so, is this started out as a simple card game. We, we ran into some problems, and it eventually evolved into a board game. And so we actually have a full board game called Usurp the King, but at one point I said, hey, you know, I had a lot of people interested in that simple card game. What if we took what we learned from the board game and now applied it back to this card game? Does it work? And it actually worked pretty well. We fixed a lot of the problems we had the first time around. So uh, in that you never know where things are going to take you. It's it's always, uh, you know, don't be afraid to throw out throw out stuff. So there's a board game sitting out there that who knows what will happen with that. It's this too. Yeah, and I think uh, 2020 is actually the year where publishers were like, how can we turn every game we have into a roll and write <laughs> and, uh, and just get as much money out of this thing as possible? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, we basically use 2020 as development, um, you know, using Tabletop Simulator. So um, we we kind of fleshed out this um, there, but it had a lot of play tests um, beforehand. So... The other um, kind of wild way to play this is, so this is a, oh, I didn't really start with this, did I? This is a two to five player game, but it's also a six and eight player game if you play it as teams. And that is a whole other level of crazy because you and I sit across the table from each other being part of the same family and we each place uh, three of five cards and we can communicate with each other in any manner in which is um, everyone else could possibly understand. In other words, if we both spoke French and no one else spoke French, we're not allowed to do that. Um, so there's these conversations going across the table where we're trying to communicate with each other and listen to the other people, and uh, but not give away too much information. It's it's uh, it's 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 pretty crazy. Um, so then the other, but the other, back to this balancing, I got a little sidetracked there, went down the rabbit hole. Um, so the other thing is in a two-player game and a three-player game, uh, these things all shift a little bit. Uh, in a five-player game, which is a little, each time you add another player, it adds a little more, uh, I don't know, I guess you call it randomness, uh, a little more and one more person that can mess up your plans. A little bit more chaos. Yeah, it, exactly. So 
Um, three and four player, well, two, three, and four are, are pretty strategic. Five is just kind of fun. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, and you still try to do it, but just so much stuff is happening. It, it, it just sort of becomes uh, wild. Um, and then, um, so I think we were one of the things we had done is come up with loyalty and um, being disgruntled and tied those into the victory conditions. So if the error, uh, so the error has to be loyal in order to win. And before that condition, it was, the error was just a little too powerful. Um, And so we kind of found this other path. So there's really three factors this victory conditions are looking at. Uh, One is whether the, court member is dead or alive. The other is whether the court member is loyal or disgruntled. And the third is whether anyone has a plurality or uh, has more cards than anyone else on that player. Because if it's tied, no one that condition doesn't happen. So if you and I both have the same number of cards, in the, cards on the air, it drops down to the bastard. So it's really kind of a third way to manipulate things by creating ties. Gotcha. Now, as far as balance goes... Did you have to make it where each layer is a little bit more challenging than the layer below it? So, for instance, the usurper, like that's an outright win. If you get that, you win. So Mm -hmm. is that a little bit harder than the king, which is a little bit harder and on down the line? Is that how you had to figure it out? Um, Half. (laughs) The other other thing that happens is, especially in a higher higher count, uh, player count, is that there's more people going after the usurper. So that top condition ends up being a little more difficult in a higher player count game. Um, So we had to balance that by um, feel more than anything else. I think I I did some mathematics early on, but then it um, that gave us the general idea of it. But then once you start playing it and you kind of see, geez, the usurpers never winning. Uh, which is would be a little ironic given the name of the game. So, you know, you we had to simplify things a little. So we, we kept playing with the number of disgruntled court members in the usurper's case and, and uh, settled on three. Um, the king condition isn't really that hard in the sense of what you need to do, basically keep the king alive and control him, but he's a target. And so... <laughs> That becomes actually a pretty difficult condition, too, because there's two other victory conditions that are based on him dying. So not a straight line answer to that in the sense of uh, difficulty. It's hard to answer that in a traditional sense because of the variables of other players trying to knock out those top victory conditions. So they inherently have some uh, difficulty in them. Gotcha. That makes sense. Now, what other games or types of games or themes or whatever uh, do you think that this mechanism would do well in? <laughs> I was actually thinking you probably asked that, huh? Um, gosh, and I'm not sure. Uh, well, political, I would assume. Um, yeah, like a house of cards kind of like yeah. you, could, you could do American politics and you're not killing people, but you're, you know, a scandal gets them out of the picture or something like that. Yeah, you would want to change things a little. Uh, mafia, I guess. Uh, we'll get some game ideas out there, right? So I think, uh, you know, crime family might work pretty well. 
Yeah, um, you could have a lot of fun with a table talk there, especially, yeah. you know, an offer you can't refuse. You know, things like that from The Godfather and all, it would be a lot of fun. Hmm, who knows? If there's a mafia game coming out in a couple of years from us, you'll know where that came from. <laughs> Just put my <laughs> name in the rule book, man. Yeah, yeah, Gabe, Gabe Barrett. <laughs> Even like a Mad Max, you know, kind of post-apocalyptic setting um, where, because you do have a hierarchy. If it's if the world has ended, then more than likely things have hierarchy. Sized? Oh, that's definitely not a word. But anyway, have broken themselves <laughs> down into hierarchy, typically based on power and and like strength and the ability to to take out rivals and stuff like that. So that could be a really interesting kind of way yeah. to do it too. Go from kind of medieval all the way to you know the year three thousand. And I assume you, I don't know quite how you do it, but something with like World War One spies, because um, there's alliances and trying to. Well, I don't know. You're sort of. I don't know if somebody ends up on top there. Maybe. Oh, that's interesting. Even like World War II, there's been games about, because there was this huge conspiracy inside uh, Germany to kill Hitler. Yes. And they were trying to get rid of him and take out the Nazis from the inside out. And like, that could be really interesting too. And, you know, kind of this different hierarchy because of like, even if that's one thing a lot of people don't think about with history, because it's like, oh, if I could go back in time, I could kill Hitler and it would save all these people it's like maybe maybe there was someone worse than hitler who was the number two right you know and so like creating a game where if this person wins then actually world war three happens you know or, or whatever you could come up with all these kind of interesting fictional ideas about the way the world would turn out well i think um what you can do is use that as a foundation for your time travel game and then um because i'm waiting for one that i really really does time travel well <laughs> so yeah, that'd be interesting there you go like, what would you yeah the hierarchy of like going back and like what would you change and if you change this then it creates that yeah. oh it's interesting yeah it's so hard to do in a board game that the time travel thing but it's it's rattled around in my brain for probably 10 years um <clears throat> don't have anything in the works that's how tough that is yeah i've had so many games in the works and they all suck and uh, they just turn <laughs> out poorly because it, it doesn't feel like it like you're saying it's um it's so hard. And uh, I have one idea based on this like storybook system that I've been working on lately that um, I've got this this kind of like Robomon is the name. It's kind of like a Pokemon style game that uses this really fun adventure map system. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it'd be real easy to make you know those maps different time periods. And this is the map from 100 years ago. And here's the one from the present. And here's the one from the future. And depending on where you are in time, you're going to go to a different place and but anyway that has nothing to do with what we're talking about that's just from the, the side <laughs> no, project i'm working on well I'm, I'm the one who brought up the time travel thing so it's fair enough <laughs> uh, so speaking of do you have any other is there a usurper roll and write uh, in the works that uses this system <laughs> there is not a, us- <laughs> a usurper roll and write oh okay well you know there's always next year yeah uh, <laughs> so anything else, any other like challenges or obstacles you ran into as, as far as like, well, we already talked a lot about balancing anything else. I, I think King making is a, is oh, a yes. pretty obvious issue. So tell me about that. And I forgot about that <laughs> of all things. Um, so King making was actually a huge problem um, because I think at the Dan, time, real quick, tell me just in case, tell me what King making means. Let's get a good definition and then we'll dive into it. Yeah. Well, good point. Cause that way people know what we're talking about. Um, so, when a game comes down to the last move and the player uh, who has that last move doesn't have any chance of winning, but the action they take is going to cause one of two other players to win, they become the kingmaker. And, um, and and so it kind of stinks because, you know, Gabe looked at me funny last turn, so I'm going to let the other guy win. Um, or if you're a couple of my friends, they're, they're married. <laughs> and anytime... 
my friend's wife has the opportunity to be a kingmaker, she never chooses her husband. She's like, nope. And she just like makes it's this like weirdest thing where she's like, I'm going to choose anyone but you husband. And it's like, this is awkward for everybody. Okay. But uh, anyway, (laughs) that's, that's hysterical. So um, the, the, what caused that was you put, you put the book out there and then when you went to resolve the book, you took a card out of your hand and put it in the book. And so you had way too much information and could play a card that the last book to resolve would end up, uh, kind of maybe swinging the game actually, you know, a fair number of times. So part of the solution there was you, and thematically makes a lot more sense. You're, you're sneaking something into a book and sending it into the court and who knows, you know, how that's going to play out at the end. And so by loading the books ahead of time, it, it, it wiped out a lot of it. Um, but prior to that, we actually had a, uh, kingmaker deck so when it came down to the last turn i think there was like eight nine we're not using this system right now but there's like eight or nine cards in there and you draw a card and the the card might say so i would choose that like that the wife would choose the other person not her husband and so uh, they were assigned a role so the she would be the kingmaker the husband would be the overlooked and the winner would be the king. And then you draw this card and it might say, well, um, the overlooked gets one more action or, and, and what drove it is there was one card in there where the, um, the kingmaker might get one more action. So if you knew you had two actions and could possibly win, if that card came up, you would take the action that increased your chances of winning. And it would be based on that instead of, of, who you're married to. Um, We changed the system of the game a little bit. So that no longer worked and then took care of much of the king making by hiding things in the book. But in the rare instance, it happens each family card that you're playing has a list of who they favor the most. So you're going to role play a little bit. If you do get into a kingmaker situation and if I'm the Sylvester family, I have to pick Lemaire over Quentin's. Quentin's over Altham and Altham over the Hayhurst family. So it's it's not the player, it's the family. Ah, okay. So you basically, in some, some ways, take some of that decision away from the player. Ah, okay. But it really, it's become a rarity because of the, the, the book was really the issue of when we were loading the book. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember who had that aha moment or, you know, I'm sure, I think one of the play testers suggested, why don't we load books first and... It just kind of, um, it really took care of that issue because you cannot, even though you're only resolving six cards each, there's so much going on in this, in this game that, um, there is no way to foresee what is going to be happening on that last action. Gotcha. Um, All right. So the, the king making situation really turned into just a basic tiebreaker. Like you see in a lot of games where if two players have the most, you know, have the same number of points, then it comes down to who has the most money. And if they're still tied, then play again. <laughs> or, you know, they come up yeah. with all sorts of kind of funny tiebreakers down, down the line. And so, um, well, yeah, except, well, in this, you can't really have a tie. So it's, it's, um, very, binary, no, I mean like really your, good. your kingmaker situation, you, you kind of yes. turned it into a rule book yes. situation. Yeah. yeah where it's kind of like mm-hmm. tiebreakers where they just say, Hey, if this happens, then this is how it plays out. And then you'll, the game will basically kind of figure out who wins based on 
these things. Yeah, gotcha. that makes sense. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Dan, any other um, thoughts or obstacles or, or anything you ran into with this system? Um, no, I think the big two. I th- I still think the the largest obstacle obstacle is um, people that that can't that just don't do well with ambiguity. It's not a criticism; it's a personality style, and so. You know, we'll sit around a table with four people at a convention and one or two people will be, I don't, I don't know what I'm, I need direction. And so that was, uh, we were, I think the tutorial cards really helped take care of that. Um, it's also because it's such a different style, I think, that you see people after, luckily it's a 20 to 30 minute game. So after they play it once, they're like, okay, let's go again. Now I, now I see what's going on. <laughs> and now I see the depth of, of things that can happen with these, these 10 cards. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then I guess I'm, I am so bad at sales and marketing. I suppose I should mention that Usurp the King is going to be on Kickstarter starting June, June 16th. Yeah, and I'll actually release this episode during the Kickstarter campaign. So if you're hearing this okay, right cool. now, if it's mid to late June, maybe early July, it's on Kickstarter right now. So go uh, go check it out. Yeah, usurp the king. Yeah, one thing that I was just sitting here like looking at the chart that you sent me as far as like how the things play out, it gives players some cool opportunities to try to pull pull it off. Like I love when a game gives you a chance. Like, all right, this is rare and this is hard to do, but if you pull it off, you are just the best player. And so like winning with the anarchist. Like which is kind of the last possible condition before no one wins. Yeah, I feel like like that'd be fun. It's like okay, I'm going to try to uh, basically eliminate everybody and be the one, be the only person standing. I feel like that'd be a lot of fun, and so it seems to give players the opportunity to to you know kind of shoot the moon and and pull things off that you know it's like oh that that, that was that was crazy and it was rare and it's yeah it is it is a little harder to win as the anarchist, um, but. You again thematically to win as the anarchist, you got to go in and sow the seeds of chaos, and you're putting daggers and poisons and disgruntlement out there, and and uh, and cr- trying to create ties. Um, so it's yeah, it it really does do that. It is kind of fun to go after the anarchist one, one uh, win once in a while. It is it is a little more difficult than the others because you got to knock everything out of the way, and you need help from other people who are not gladly helping you, but they are helping you. Yeah. It's such an interesting system. And I hope other games, you know, kind of borrow the ideas and, and come up with these other ways to use it. And hopefully they'll send those ideas to you and you can publish those too. Yeah. Well, I, Hey, uh, rising water floats all boats or whatever that is. <laughs> I'm okay with, uh, you know, people taking the system and, and doing different things with it. That's, that's cool with me. Absolutely. And so tell us where people can find you online. Actually, the easiest is our website, just DPH games. Uh, dot com and um you know on facebook I, I do have instagram and all that i don't do much on it but you know um but dphgames.com you'll find us and distribution wise we're sort of all over the place so i'm never quite sure what stores will have our stuff or not awesome well dan really appreciate your time appreciate you coming on the show and uh, good luck with the kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now all right great thanks a lot gabe Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, 
and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?